Following up on Steve's brief announcement, this Saturday is an important day for the church, Saturday, May 1st, uh, 7 a.m. here. We've got the facility booked till noon. I'm sure we won't be here that long, but we didn't want to put a closing time on it. And what we're going to do is have a time, um, we'll be doing a few things, actually. Um, We'll spend time praying, we'll have some time to worship. Uh, We'll have some time for uh, silence and reflection. We'll close that time with the Lord's Supper too. Um, The church, Lion and Lamb, has been around for about a dozen years. And uh, as we've talked about future plans, where we're going, what we're doing, what God's call and purpose for us are, um, in recent conversations, the thought had come to my mind that this would be a great time for us to fast and pray, that is to humble ourselves before God and to ask Him to pour out His grace on us, give us direction, make sure that we're doing the right things, heading in the right direction. And I had said, Lord, if this is just me, that's fine, but if this is something that's on your mind too, would you confirm that? And lo and behold, within the week, Tanya Schwenson says the same thing, and we put out an email to the other leaders, and they say, two or three of them say the same thing, we were thinking the same thing, a time for the church to fast and pray. You know, as humans on the earth, sometimes we think we're powerful. We're really not. And God's sovereign, and He's got all the power. And one of the things God loves to do is to honor those who humble themselves before Him. There's lots of things we cannot do. We can't tell the future. Uh, We don't have power to go out and do things on our own. But we can humble ourselves before God. And that's what we want to do this coming Saturday. I've said fast and pray. Our thought was that we would actually have a concerted time of fasting and prayer. That's one of the times... You guys know biblically, if, if God's people were humbling themselves, they would, they would fast. They would put away sort of the pleasures of life to just focus on that time with God. This season is so busy that this is very difficult. And so there will be more emphasis on the prayer time itself than on the fasting. So if you're fasting that morning, great. But the bottom line is we simply want to come to God, humble ourselves before Him, and make us, as much as we can, ready recipients of His grace. That's what we're after. So if Lion Lamb is your home, we hope you're here Saturday morning. We'll start at 7. If you can't make it at 7 and can later, come. And I'm sure we'll probably be here at least two or three hours. Okay? So Saturday, 7 o'clock here. Totally different direction now heading into the teaching. Um, You know it's possible to sit in church on Sunday morning and still feel lonely and isolated and like no one really knows you, no one really sees you, no one hears what's going on in your heart, no one sees the issues going on in your life. Even in a crowd, you and I can feel lonely, isolated, hopeless, despair. And there's, uh, for many of us, this is a huge, huge trap we've got to be aware of. Uh, despair, loneliness, we're, we're in this all on our own, no one else knows No one else cares. Again, even in church on a Sunday morning, we can come in with those thoughts in our mind. And the passage we're in this morning addresses this issue. Does anyone else really know us? Does anyone else really know what's going on in my life? Does anyone else care? And does God know? And even if He does, does He care? Does it make any difference at all? We're in Genesis 16 this morning. We'll start reading at verse 6. That was the last in the verses we went over last week. We'll pick up then at 7 and go through the end of the chapter. We may run slightly long this morning if we do 
I apologize, but I wouldn't want to shortchange on any of the things I think God wants us to hear this morning. Also, you know, anytime you teach the scriptures, um, I've taught one verse before. You know, this is like 10 verses. This is a lot for me to cover on a given Sunday morning. And as you go through this, you might have tons of other things you'd think about as well. We'll just cover about the three highlights that I'm thinking of and trust that God's in that. But there's always more in the scriptures than we're getting out in a single talk on a Sunday morning. So Genesis 16, starting at verse 6. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid, that's Hagar, is in your power. Do to her what's good in your sight. So, Sarai did what was good in her sight. She treated her harshly. Hagar fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. Geographically, we know that means she's heading back to Egypt. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Literally, this would be place yourself under her hand. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, Further, behold, you're with child, you'll bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Uh, New American Standard, given heed. NIV, if you're reading from that, says, heard your misery. King James, heard your affliction. The key here is that God heard. New American Standard doesn't necessarily communicate that. But the key is God heard. Verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He will live to the east of all his brothers. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive after here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. We assume Hagar came back and related this story to Abram, and he followed suit and named the boy as God had said. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So brief summary, if you remember last week, Hagar, or excuse me, Sarai and Abram are old. They've waited 10 years after God gave them a promise. They've been patient. They've waited a long time, and there's been no son. It's all they want in the world. So Sarai takes matters into her own hands. She does what she's able to do, and she gives Hagar, her maid, to Abram. This was not all that unusual in that day. So that through a surrogate, she could have a boy. And lo and behold, Hagar gets pregnant, and she's going to have a boy. And Sarai gets what she's after. And then we said, yeah, yes, but no, and, and more than she was after. And Hagar despises now Sarai, this older woman who can't have children. And so Sarai's response is she's not liking Hagar anymore, and she is mistreating her. Now, on the way to Egypt, Hagar's headed back home. She meets the angel of the Lord. We've mentioned this briefly in the past. We're not going into this this morning. I assume this angel is God himself, that it's the second person of the Trinity, that's the Lord Jesus before the incarnation, because when he says, I will greatly multiply your seed, that's the prerogative of deity, and this would be consistent with other appearances in the Old Testament. Go back, the angel says, I'll bless your son, and you shall become a multitude through him. 
The first of the three points I want to cover this morning is Sarai treated her harshly. It's this theme or this element of harsh treatment. Uh, New American Standard mistreated, NIV, or excuse me, NIV's mistreated, treated her harshly, New American Standard. Darby's uh, version says oppressed. If you look up the Hebrew word, it means to be afflicted, humbled, oppressed, subdued, humbled, mistreated. So here is Hagar. She's a servant to Sarai, and Sarai's not liking her, not feeling the love, and she is oppressing, humiliating, treating her bad in any way she can. Now, if I'm Hagar and I'm running away from this situation and God shows up, I could be thinking of lots of things I would want God to do for me. Magic carpet ride back to Egypt, that would be nice. You know, a traveling caravan, some camels I could ride home, that'd be okay too. I could think maybe I would say, hey, uh, just give me some kind of revenge on her. You know, she despises me, I despise her, you know, give me some way to get back at her. I'd be thinking something along this line, I think. And look at God's response to her. He says, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Go back to Sarai. Go back to misery. Go back to poor treatment. Go back to humiliation. God's will for Hagar is to go back to the last place in the world she wanted to be. You know... uh, Americans, I think us especially because we have life so good, we are a comfort-loving people. You know, we can get most anything we want almost instantly, most of the time. We live in houses, we've got comfortable beds, we drive nice cars, we have transportation, most of us. I mean, by any standard, we've got it pretty good. And we love comfort. And when we find ourselves in these situations where we feel miserable where we feel we're not being respected by someone else or treated well, we live in a culture in which it just says, cut your losses and run. You know, take your hits and get out of there. Go do something else. Escape that. Get away. And think about this for her. Her misery is her family, isn't it? This is a family situation. She's the second wife. Not a good thing, you know. One, you remember the key lesson from a week or two ago? One woman is enough for any man. Okay. And too much for us sometimes. Two wives. She's one of two wives. This is a family situation. You know, how many here can think of their own family situations at one time or another? There's acrimony. There's strife. You know, you just want a haven. You want people who know you and love you and see things as they are and comfort you. And, you know, in that place for you, it's become this place of mistreatment, disrespect. You know, this is hard. This is hard. And what do we want to do most of the time? We want to do exactly what Hagar did. We want to cut and run. We want to get out of there. And, of course, this kind of disrespect or mistreatment, bad attitudes, this isn't related only to families. You can see the same thing at school, at work, you know, any of the associations or relationships you have. You can see the same element in them, acrimony, friction, strife. And against our senses that we just want to get out of that painful, uncomfortable, disrespectful place, God tells Hagar in this story, go back to that last place on earth you want to be. That place where you're not respected, where you're not esteemed, that's exactly where I want you to go. And guys, this is the deal. More often than not, in these situations, God isn't 
given us the magic carpet ride to someplace else. He's telling us to stay where we're at and to endure more often than not. We're not respected the way we should be. Yeah, God knows that. You know, people don't see us as we really are. Yeah, understand that too. And yet more often than not, God calls us to stay there and endure. Now, I want to be careful uh, speaking. There's a lot of ladies here. And let me say this clearly. If you are in a relationship where there's physical abuse, I am not telling you to stay there. Do you know what I'm saying? If you're physically abused, if you're not safe in the arrangement you're in, or your children are not safe, we're not saying stay there and take the abuse. You or your children physically. This is inappropriate. Uh, Relatives, men, husbands, fathers, uncles, you name it, oftentimes, and you know this comes up in the press all the time, thinking of, of the church figures around the world. You know, guys who are supposed to be protectors have become abusers. We're not saying, and I'm not saying this morning, you stay in physically abusive relationships. You don't. You get out and you get help. Okay? That's a caveat. But that aside, more often than not, in these situations where there's strife and it's uncomfortable and we're not getting what we want, we're not getting the love we think we need, we want to cut and run like Hagar. And guys, more often than not, God's saying, no, stay where you're at. That's where I've got you. Stay there and endure. Now, I have no doubt this is not what Hagar wanted to hear. She just wants out. But also, think of this. God pronounces a blessing on her son, this other son of Abram. But just like his word to her, this is probably not what she wanted to hear as far as God's word for her son and her son's future. Listen to this. How would you like it if I told you your son would be a donkey, a wild donkey? And that he would be opposed to everyone and everyone would be opposed to him. That your son's future was to be this neighing, hee-hawing, wild, rambunctious guy that couldn't live with anybody else. That your son's future would carry the same elements of strife that you're trying to run away from with Sarai. That's God's blessing on your son. That's his pronouncement for your son's future. Not only that, but... It says that he's going to live east of his relatives. Your versions may, may differ on this a little bit, but it means at least two things. You know, if you look at a map of Canaan, the promised land along the Mediterranean coast there, if you go east, where are you? You're in the desert. You're in the wilderness. You're in the place where there's no water. You're in the place nobody wants to live. So when God says he's a wild donkey, and by the way, he's going to live where nobody else wants to live, east, in the wilderness, in the desert. And remember this too in the Old Testament stories, if you're moving east, generally, you're being cursed. If you're moving east, generally you're being cursed. Adam and Eve leave the garden, they go to the east, they've been kicked out of the place of blessing. When Israel's deported to Babylon, they're moving east, out of the place of blessing. So here's... God tells her, hey, Hagar, things are tough. Go back and submit to put yourself under Sarai's hand. Endure this. And your son, you're going to have a son. And your son's name is going to be God hears. And this is your son's future. (laughs) Wow. How nice for you. You know, how good. Isn't, Isn't that what we all want to hear? God's blessing on our future. Now, when you hear this, if, you, if you're tempted to see God in a harsh light, let me just bring up some things just to think about as you mull this over. 
The first is this. Hagar is not the woman God promised that Abram would have a son with. Hagar is not the woman God said he would bless with Abram in having a son. And Ishmael is not the child God blessed Abram. They're not, period. You remember this relationship, this is what human activity can produce. Here, Abram, take a second wife. This was not God's idea. Here, Abram, have a son by this woman. This was not God's plan. So Hagar is not the wife God intended to bless Abram with a son from, and Ishmael is not the son of promise. God doesn't give Sarah's blessing to Hagar, and he does not give Isaac's blessing to Ishmael. He doesn't. Also, remember this, God does as he sees fits, and that's his prerogative because he's God. If I say this, are you insulted? Do you feel assaulted if I say God can do as he pleases? I think we do, typically, Because we want to say God should be fair the way we're fair. God should dole out the same thing to everyone just the way we think fair is in this culture at this time. But you know what? God is not fair. He's never fair. He never says he's fair the way we count fairness. But he is always just and he's never less than just. Never less than just. And he also says when he describes himself, he says he's characterized by mercy. And you see this all the time. And though it doesn't sound like it here... God is being merciful to Hagar and God is being merciful to her son Ishmael. And you'll see this in the future. So go back, God says to Hagar, and your son, he's going to multiply just like the son of promise, but it's not going to be in the place of blessing. Okay. Harsh treatment. The second thing I want to point out in this passage is God hears and God sees. If you don't hear anything else this morning, this element about God hears and God sees, I think for me, is the key. So verse 11, if you're there in Genesis 16 again, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, call his name Ishmael. And that means God hears or God has heard you. Call that boy's name Ishmael. Now, even though Ishmael is not the child of promise, you see three times in his story Related to Ishmael, God says, I've heard. Here in verse 11, but also in the next chapter in Genesis 17, when God shows up and he appears to Abram and he says, Sarah's going to have a son. And the father of faith, he can't quite get his mind wrapped around this yet. And he, he doesn't believe it. And so he laughs in his heart and he says, do Lord what I think is possible for you to do. God bless Ishmael. And the response is, verse 20 in chapter 17, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him. I will make him fruitful. I'll multiply him exceedingly. He'll become the father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. You know what? Those are almost exactly the same words said about Isaac. God does bless Ishmael. Different place, different way. But related to Abraham's plea to God, God I don't know about a son from Sarah, but this little guy I've already got, please bless him. And God says, I've heard you about Ishmael, and I will bless him. And then later in chapter 21, after Isaac is born, and there's strife now between the son of promise and Ishmael, Sarai boots Hagar and Ishmael out. God tells Abram, this is okay. I'll still take care of them. And when they're in the wilderness where they're going to live, When they're in the wilderness and the water's gone and Hagar thinks her little man's going to die, 
Verse 17 says, God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Don't fear. God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him by the hand. I'll make a great nation of him. Three times in the life of the son who's not the promised son. He's not the son of blessing. Three times in his life, God still says, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard. And I'm going to bless him. And I'm going to take care of him. Don't worry. This theme about God hearing us and God seeing us, this is a big, big deal in the scriptures. Let me give you another instance. This is totally out of Genesis. This is in Isaiah 38. King Hezekiah was a great king in Israel's history. You know, you've got no good kings in Israel when the nation divides, but you've got several great ones in Judah. And Hezekiah is one of them. And there comes a day when he gets sick. And Isaiah comes to him from God and says, hey, prepare yourself because this is to death. You're going to die, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah weeps. And he turns his face to the wall and he calls out to God. He prays to God. And Isaiah is sent back from God and says, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life and I'll deliver this city from the king of Assyria. God says, I've heard you and I've seen. I hear and I know. I know the way it is. God sees and God hears. And when you and I call out, God hears. And when life isn't what it's supposed to be, God still sees. Guys, this is one of those things. This is an area of life where one of our great temptations can be to feel misunderstood, unappreciated. No one else knows what's going on in my life. Uh, No one cares. No one hears me. No one sees me. No one sees life as it really is for me right here and right now. And though I sit with tons of people in church on Sunday morning, no one else really knows. No one else really hears. No one else really sees or cares. And you got this theme here. These aren't even the chosen instruments of God's blessing. And God's still saying, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. And I see you. And I know how things are. And I'm going to take care of it. And for us as Christians especially, when you're in your desert places, and you will be at times where you're not feeling the love from God or from others, you feel like you're isolated, you're in your own wilderness... The enemy's going to come along and he's going to whisper in your ear and he's going to say, nobody knows and nobody cares. Nobody loves you and God doesn't know. Look where he's left you out here in the wilderness, out here in the dry places. And you've got to remind yourself of Hagar. God hears and God sees. And guys, if you're a Christian, you're never alone. God has bonded himself to you by his Holy Spirit out of the Old Testament here into the New. When you trusted in Christ, God gave you himself in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So that no matter what experience we're going through in life, no matter what mistreatment we suffer, no matter how much or to what degree we think or it seems like or it looks like or feels like, nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody sees. God knows, God hears, God sees and God cares. And even to Hagar and Ishmael, by the way, whose descendants will oppress the child of promise and his descendants, as we'll see here in a minute, God says, I hear you, I see you, and I care. And I'm going to bless you anyway. I'm going to be there for you anyway. Now, 
This is especially true for Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, guys, Paul says it's to be without hope and without God. But when you know Christ, you've got a promise that the God who hears and the God who sees is always with you. And you're never alone, no matter what. That's a great place to be. If you don't know Christ, He's the place you want to be. He's the God who sees. He's the God who cares. We'll see that here in just a little minute, a minute too, sort of in the ultimate sense. But for us, we're not in Hagar's shoes. We feel like it sometimes. But even in her case, God says, no, I hear you, and I hear your boy, and I see you, and I'm going to take care of you. Uh, The third thing I want to look at is uh, this story's tie to other scriptures. We talked last week how this story of Sarai, the first six verses, tied point by point back to Genesis 3 and the, the, the account of the temptation with Eve. There's more ties back to Genesis 3 in this story that we won't go into this morning, but I want to look ahead to Exodus as well, <clears throat> excuse me, and to the ties that we have there. This is an odd twist, but when you get to the book of Exodus, this theme of oppression, crying out for help, God hearing, God answering, comes up again. Only now, instead of the Egyptians suffering, the Egyptians are the oppressors, and Sarai's descendants are the ones under their oppression. If you remember back in Genesis fifteen thirteen, God came, He showed up to Abram, and He said... Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Hagar's got a few years in her life, bad treatment. Abram's descendants, they're going to have 400 years of mistreatment and abuse. 400 years. If you open to the pages of Exodus, in verse 11 of the first chapter, we're told that the Egyptians put slave masters over them, over the Jews, to oppress them with forced labor, mistreatment, abuse, you name it. They're getting it. But the the roles have been changed. It's not Hagar the Egyptian. It's her people oppressing Sarai's children. If you go to Exodus 3, this is intentional, guys, when you read these stories. You know, I've said this before, but when you read the stories, if you pick out the elements of the stories, just recite the elements of the story to yourself and then see if they sound like other stories, because God wants us to catch these, these allusions to other places. In Exodus 3, <clears throat> starting at verse 7, God says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry. I've seen their affliction, and I've heard their cries because of their taskmasters. This is the same theme, and it's the same language as Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. I've come down to deliver them. I'm going to take them to a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, Behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. I've heard their cries. I've seen their oppression. It's the same language. It's the same thing. And if you go to chapter 4, verse 31, it says, The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. He was concerned about them and that he had seen their affliction. They're like, okay, God's seen. We're not alone. God knows what's going on. 400 years. God knows what's going on. We're not alone. God's seen and he's going to take care of us. 
At least one lesson for me on this is, if you're alive on planet Earth, you're going to get mistreatment, (laughs) oppression. You're going to get the hard side of life. You're not going to escape. You know, only in the West, like the States, do messages, do health and wealth gospel messages sell. If you're from health and wealth background, I'm sorry, but it is, it is a biblical illiteracy. It's a distortion of the gospel. If you're a person alive on planet Earth, you're going to experience suffering, mistreatment, persecution, you name it. And guess what? If you're God's friend, you get more. Everybody on the Earth gets mistreatment and rough times. But guess what? You become God's friend and then you get an additional measure, more of the same. People that tell you God's will for your life, it's all green lights, it's all blue skies, this is not reality. But it sells in the West because we have physical material comforts. It's, uh, it is a, a crude distortion of the gospel and of God, His call to us. Frankly, it's an insult to Christians around the world too who don't have our material wealth but who are suffering as Christians around the world to tell them that if only they understood the Scriptures better, they wouldn't be being persecuted. They wouldn't be in jail. Their lands and their assets wouldn't be seized. Their churches wouldn't be burned. If only they believed God as they should. It's an insult. If you're a Christian, if you're God's friend, you get the regular strife, mistreatment of the world, and then you get some more. Jesus said in John 16, I think it's 33, in the world you have tribulation. Guys, if you're in the world, you got trouble. But then he says, Be of good courage because I've overcome the world. I win in the end and you're on my side. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is as Christians. Everybody on the earth gets trouble. Christians get more. So on one hand, you look at Hagar and Ishmael, they get sort of the mistreatment and the persecution for a little while. Sarai's got the son of promise, but then my goodness, what happens to Isaac's descendants? They're oppressed 400 years by the Egyptians before God says he sees and hears and leads them out. So everybody on the earth goes through tough times, wilderness experiences, rejection, persecution, you name it. Christians just get more. God's people just get more. So get over the thought that you can live life and it's all going to be good. No challenges. People will appreciate you as they should. Generally, it doesn't happen this side of heaven. On applications, let me mention three things. First, back to the first point, be willing to entertain the notion that God may want you to stay in the painful situations you find yourself in longer than your comfort level says you should be. Be willing to entertain the notion that God wants you longer in a situation than you might otherwise think based on your comfort level and your desires. And I don't say God never wants you to move on. I mean, I'm aware of people and I tell them, I think God wants to move you out of that. Abuse for sure. But even jobs and and, uh, uh, relationships, I mean, sometimes it's unnecessary and you can do something else, that's okay. But entertain the notion that God may want you in that uncomfortable situation longer than you would choose to be there. Also remember this, just in this whole arena of when you feel despair, lonely, that people don't know you, that they don't see, that no one understands, that the God that we have to do with is the God who hears and the God who sees. 
on one hand, you go into the book of Hebrews, it says it's a fearful thing because the God we have to do with, he knows it all. He sees everything as it is. But the one we interact with, he does see, he does hear, he does know, and he wants to deliver us. And the last thing is this. As you think about your life or you think about this passage, if you're tempted to think ill of God, God's less than fair. I don't think he treated Hagar the way he should have. Or Ishmael got a raw deal. I mean, what's with that? The, the, The donkey and the wilderness and all that. Think of this. When the angel of the Lord that appears to Hagar in the wilderness, when he takes on our humanity in the incarnation, he comes to the earth as a servant, just like Hagar, doesn't he? That's what Philippians 2 says. So if you read Philippians 2, 7, it says of Jesus, he emptied himself, this is in the incarnation, he took the form of a bondservant, just like Hagar. Same thing. I'm not here, I'm not a king, I'm not royalty, I'm not sovereignty. No, I'm a servant. That was Jesus' role on the earth. And when it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, Remember that it was only the vilest of criminals that were ever killed in this way, that were put on a cross. This was to be total humiliation and embarrassment and a lesson to others not to do the same thing. So when the angel of the Lord that speaks to Hagar in the wilderness takes on our flesh, our humanity, he comes in the form of Hagar as a servant. And then not just as a servant, he takes the very lowest spot available on the earth by being crucified as the vilest of humanity. And think of this. When the God who spoke to Hagar as the God who hears and the God who sees, think of this. When that same God hangs on the cross, bearing the penalty for your sins and mine, when he cries out, his father doesn't answer him. And when he says, Lord, see me, Help me. His father turns away. The one who said, I see and I hear, when he's hanging on the cross, guys, dad's not there. And what's Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason he was forsaken is so that God can make good on all those promises through that son of promise that one day we could become his children. And God would pour out his grace and his mercy on people like you and me, Ishmael's and Hagar's like you and me, that God would then be free if Jesus was totally rejected, bore our penalties on the cross. The God who hears and sees couldn't be heard, couldn't be seen, couldn't be answered by his father because he was bearing the burden of our weight, our sin at that time. And that allowed his father and now our father to pour out His grace and His mercy on sinners like us. So guys, you and I can never say, we can never accuse God of being less than fair. And when you read these stories and you think God's unfair, you've got to remember it always goes back to this. Jesus' death on the cross is the answer to all the, all the accusations we might level at God. They all die at the cross. Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. Nobody can say God doesn't see or hear or care. No one, ever. No one can say God's ever less than fair or just, ever. He's better than all that. And Jesus' death on the cross proves it. That's the bottom line. 
So when you're feeling despised, when you're not feeling the love, when you're not being respected as you think you should, you remember Christ on the cross for your sins and mine. You remember the angel of the Lord that says, oh yeah, God sees and God cares. He hears. That's the one on the cross dying for your sins and mine. Unheard, unseen by his father so that the father could pour out his love and affirmation and grace and blessing on Ishmael's like us. And then think of this. I love this verse out of Exodus 4.31. This is a great example. The people believed. Those Jews who heard God was aware and God was going to do something for them. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshiped. And that's what we should do. God, help us to lay all of our accusations, all of our petty thoughts, Lord, all of our little recriminations against a good and bountiful God. Lord, help us to lay these at the foot of the cross Jesus hung from, died on for our sins. Lord, help us to remember that you were willing to bless one who you know would be the the, uh, oppressor of the children of promise in the line of Abram. And that, Lord, you're characterized by mercy even to those who reject you and spit in your face. And that, Jesus, even on the cross, you were dying for the sins of the world. Not only those who would lovingly embrace you, Lord, but for those who were hurling abuse at you at the same time. Father, thank you that you hear and that you see. And Lord, when we're tempted to forget that, help us to remember Hagar. And Lord, ultimately help us to remember Jesus on the cross for us, that you really have heard, you really have seen, and you've sent your Son so that you could redeem us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.